Well, let's uh, get right into it. We're doing a sermon series called Old But Not Obsolete. We're studying the Ten Commandments, and today we're on commandment number seven. And as we systematically look at these Ten Commandments that God has given to us, we do so because whatever God says is true and beneficial, and also because we are concerned about the world within which we live. And if we can just get our our nation and our uh, societies and our educational institutions and our legal courts uh, to return to a recognition of the supremacy of God and his word over all of life, obviously this doesn't necessarily mean that people who obey God's word will go to heaven because they may not have a relationship with Christ, but there will be a reduction in injustice and broken relationships and broken marriages, etc. So we are interested, of course, in leading people to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and teaching people God's word, but we're also very keen on having a voice and an impact upon our culture, which is fast deteriorating around us. And so the Ten Commandments really are foundational to law. All states, all governments are accountable as God's deacons to legislate and to rule under God's sovereign rule. This is clear in Romans chapter 13. And so I, I hope that this message will, will not only impact you, but as you think about it, you share it with your children and coworkers and hopefully future generations that will over time make a lasting difference in our world. So in um, the 10 commandments, we have our four commandments that relate primarily to our walk with God. And then we have a series of commandments that are very relational in nature. And the one that we're going to be discussing today revolves around adultery and faithfulness in marriage. So I want to declare out loud and in an unabashed, unashamed way at the very beginning of this sermon this morning that God is the one that created the concept of human sexuality. And therefore, we shouldn't be ashamed of the fact that we are sexual beings. We don't need to hide that and pretend that we are not pro-sex. We are pro-sex because God is pro-sex. And we acknowledge that each of us is born male or female. So therefore, Christians necessarily should be in favor of sex. But we need to qualify that in favor of a biblical view of sexuality. And this is really important for parents to teach to their children. And may I say to those of you that are parents, teach it to your kids two or three years before you feel comfortable to start teaching it to your kids. For the simple reason that they already know. Someone's already talking to them. Someone's already whispering in their ears. They've already seen the images that are corrupting their view of sexuality. So don't wait till your son is 15 to have the talk. Talk to them far earlier than that. And from the beginning, in fact, don't be afraid of presenting them with a positive view of maleness and femaleness. And then slowly over time, you obviously get into the, what we would call the nitty gritty issues that are important in this topic. Now, God places boundaries in the scriptures. God places boundaries on the way we express ourselves sexually, not because he's mean, not because he's a cosmic killjoy that wants to make your life difficult, but because he loves you. Unfortunately, our culture has taken God's boundaries and thrown them in the trash can. And so you see it just like I see it. We live in a culture that is hedonistic, meaning that it pursues pleasure as its ultimate goal. And the boundaries for how we conduct ourselves sexually have been thrown away, and the result is distrust, 
The result is disease, unwanted children, unfortunately, even dead marriage beds. What do I mean by that? People that are married that are not sexually intimate. Why? Because they're burned out sexually or they filled their minds with all sorts of fantasy images and, and they've literally lost the capacity to conduct themselves meaningfully in the marriage bed. In addition to that, we have sexual abuse, rape, sexual addiction. Sex trafficking is becoming an increasing problem around the world. And a, reductioni- a reductionistic view of human value. So now we have people that meet others and all they're concerned about is the other person's body. They're not concerned about their soul, their mind. It's just like, I like your body. So all, all of these problems in culture arise when we toss God's boundaries aside. So what we need to do is to re- reclaim and recover a healthy biblical understanding of human sexuality. And there are many places in the scriptures we could go to to help, but we're just going to spend most of our time in a kind of a handful or so of scriptures. But we're going to start with Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. And as I just read this very short statement to you, keep in mind all of the negative images and messages that you've received over the last several decades or years of your life. Hollywood spends a lot of money on corrupting the creational view of human sexuality. Over the, over the years, there's been all sorts of soul-destroying episodes of shows and movies like Swingtown. How's that for the name of a show? Never seen it, but I've heard of it. Two and a Half Men, Sex in the City. We have all these on-demand streaming options available at people's fingertips. People hook up for anonymous encounters with people they've never met before through various online chat groups. So into this confused, messed up, upside-down, topsy-turvy world, God says this in very unambiguous language in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. This command, by the way, applies to men and women. There are some cultures historically, and even in the present, especially in Middle Eastern countries, that see this as only a prohibition for women. Women, you shouldn't commit adultery, but men, they can do whatever they want. Well, just as Joseph recognized in Genesis 39.9, when he was propositioned by a married woman that it was a sin against God, so we must recognize that it's a sin for both men and women to participate in an adulterous act. You might be interested, by the way, in knowing that some countries of the world, and I think three or four U.S. states, they don't enforce it, but officially still outlaw adultery. It's actually a crime, and it should be. Whether it's engaged in by uh, consenting adults or not, it's a crime. And the reason why it should be a crime to commit adultery in a country like this is because it has all sorts of destructive implications for other people. Adultery is not just a problem between two people. It affects children. It affects grandchildren, great-grandchildren. It affects economies. It affects 
cultural stability. It has far-reaching implications. So before we discuss some of the consequences of failing to obey this commandment from God, I want to introduce you in the scripture to four different types of adultery. There are four different types of adultery that the scriptures speak of. And the first, obviously, is physical adultery. So physical adultery is the act of a married person engaging in sexual intercourse with someone they are not married to. So if two unmarried couples are having sexual intercourse, that's called fornication. But when a married person has sex with someone they are not married to, that's considered adultery. Now, we know that the statistics range broadly on adultery, but most tell us that up to 50% of men in our culture and 26% of women have had extramarital sex. That's pretty shocking. I'm not sure how you measure that. Usually when you have a large number like that, there's a larger percentage that's lying about it. But they tell us that maybe up to half of men have had some sort of an extramarital affair or relationship. Worldwide, statisticians tell us that up to 44% have had some sort of a one-night stand. We also know that if you look around us, we have a rise in divorce rates generation by generation. Pharmaceutical companies are constantly coming out with medications to, cha- to mitigate against sexually transmitted diseases, which is a byproduct of this kind of a lifestyle. And then spiritual demise, it's hard to even measure that. It's hard to quantify that, but many people's lives have literally been destroyed by these soul-destroying, trust-destroying sins. So if you have come to church today and you are among the 50% or the 26%, before I go any further, I, I do want to remind you that we believe in something called forgiveness. But forgiveness is predicated upon repentance and repentance is predicated upon a knowledge of the truth. So you have to know the truth in order to repent from error in order to find forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't just indiscriminately bestowed because God is loving and good. In order to receive forgiveness, one needs to repent. And repentance is both a mental acknowledgement of the fact that you've sinned and a willingness to stop sinning. It's a turning away from sin. So we're, we're preaching the truth today, not to bring condemnation, but to bring conviction or at least to deliver a warning And if you have failed, the good news is you can repent of your sins and you can hit the reset button. And God certainly is more than willing to help you to find hope and healing in his word. One of the classic examples of an adulterer in the scriptures is King David. Remember King David took another man's wife and then subsequently had the man put to death so that he wouldn't get caught, and that didn't work out so well for him, and yet God forgave him. There were consequences to his sin, of course, but God forgave him. So again, we can find great hope in the prospect of forgiveness. But perhaps some among us are making the mistake that David made for probably at least nine months. 
which would have been the gestational process before his child was born from Bathsheba. And that is to try to cover it up or to ignore it or to fail to repent of it. This was David's tactic. Maybe he had some of the modern lies of our times floating through his mind way back when. Well, it's not going to hurt anybody or, well, we're, we're just very compatible, this new woman and I, or, you know, I, I'm not sure that Uriah could really meet her needs in the way that I did or, you know, or I deserve it. Whatever the lies might have been, there were certainly many lies, I'm sure, that, that sort of stalled out his desire to repent for many, many months and months. But at the end of the day, God got a hold of him. God relentlessly pursues his own and David buckled, dropped to his knees and repented of his sin. So there's never a valid reason to break God's commandments. Physical adultery is a sin 100% of the time. But there's another kind of adultery that Jesus speaks out against and it's mental adultery, adultery of the mind. We need to make sure that we guard our minds. If we're marked by stinking thinking, bad things will happen. We'll make errors, we'll sin, we'll find ourselves in catastrophic circumstances. Jesus taught us in Matthew 5, verse 28, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So while every act of physical adultery starts in the heart, not every act of mental adultery necessarily leads to physical adultery, but it's still a sin in the eyes of God. So we need to guard our minds. We can't excuse ourselves and say, well, you know what? I've never had an affair on my husband or my wife, but I'm always checking out other men or other women. No, that, that's a sin, and we need to acknowledge that it's a sin. It's not a sin to acknowledge in an objective way that someone's handsome or someone's beautiful. That's not a sin in and of itself. But oftentimes, it's the second look. Or it's the, the mental game of starting to think inappropriately of what it might be like to have a relationship with that person that is a sin. And this is why one of the spiritual fruits that God wants us to all develop is the spiritual fruit of self-control. We need to discipline ourselves to be self-controlled. Physically self-controlled, of course, but also mentally self-controlled. And in order to be self-controlled, it's necessary for us to allow God to transform our minds, to think more clearly, to think on a more godly level. How do we do that? Well, we take in scripture. We meditate upon scripture. We allow that which is pure to saturate our thinking instead of that which is impure. In order to do this, I want to present to you four steps. Very, be very practical today as to how to clean up your mind. One would be to meditate upon scripture when you're tempted. Now, in order to meditate upon scripture, what do you need to have done already? read it, memorized it, studied it. So when you're tempted, meditate upon scripture. This is really important. Think about your spouse when you're tempted to be with someone else. Take those affections, those desires, and direct them toward your spouse. Third, cut off thoughts immediately instead of allowing them to linger. 
Temptation's going to come into your mind. Your eyes are going to be exposed to tempting images. You won't be able to help that. But when you start to meditate upon them or you start to look a little too long, this is where you have to cut them off. Don't allow them to linger. If you're in a position of temptation, how about this? Call a friend. Say, hey, bro, you know, we should all have accountability partners in our lives. I'm just kind of feeling tempted right now. Could you pray with me? This is one of the things we often encourage in our men's discipleship groups. Don't fall into the rut of allowing your mind to be cluttered up with stinking, lustful thinking. Don't allow yourself to get into the rut. If you're a man of checking out all the girls all the time, especially in the springtime when the skimpy clothes start to come out, bounce your eyes, look away. Really, really important. Guard your heart when you're in a conversation or a relationship with someone that's not your spouse and you start to feel sort of a a connection. Guard your heart. Put some boundary fences up. Did you know that train tracks are spaced four feet, eight and a half inches apart. Why? Kind of a random measurement. Well, some claim that this is so because that's the way it was in England. Next question is, why was it that way in England? Because that's the distance the tramways used before they developed railroads. So why were the tramways four foot, eight and a half inches apart? Because when they built the tramways, they used the same tools that wagon builders used to build. And that's how wide wagon wheels were spaced. So the question is, why were wagon wheels spaced that far apart? Because the old roads in England had ruts in the roads that had been formed. And they made the wheels on the wagons the same distance as the ruts on the road in order to not break any wheels. So why were the wagon ruts that far apart? Because that's how far apart the wheels were on Roman chariots. So you see how one rut is caused because of another rut. It's caused because of another rut. It's caused because of another rut. Usually when we find ourselves in a mental rut or in a habit or in a sinful addictive behavior in our lives, It's because we made a compromise in some area before that, and we made a compromise in some area before that, and we made a compromise in some area before that. And that's why we find ourselves in our current set of circumstances. So to get out of the rut, instead of following the ways and the patterns and the habits of this world, we need to learn to pattern our thinking after God's way of thinking and therefore meditate upon the word of the Lord. In fact, if people put the same kind of energy that they put into sexual addiction and satisfying their desires and gratifying their physical appetites, if people put the same amount of energy into that, the same amount of time into that as they did into meditating and reflecting upon God's word, we'd see revival across the world. It takes time to be a sexual addict. It takes time to fall into unhealthy ruts and patterns of behavior. So we all have energy. The question is, are we going to channel it towards sin or are we going to channel it towards righteousness? Now, here's a third one. And this is going to 
I'm sure challenge some thinking, maybe rattle a few cages, but it needs to be said. The third kind of adultery that's spoken of in the Bible is adultery with your spouse. Did you know that you can be married and be an adulterer with your spouse? How can that possibly be? Well, in situations where marriages have been formed, but they're not legitimate marriages. So you might be running around with an Ontario marriage license, but God has forbidden that marriage. God has ruled that marriage unlawful, immoral. And we can think of many examples like this. This would be an example of where a person can actually be a married adulterer. So check out Matthew chapter five again. In verse 31, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, parentheses, except on the ground of sexual immorality. So in other words, you divorce your wife and it's not because she cheated on you, but it's because, well, we couldn't get along. There was emotional abuse and all this language and lingo we make up all solvable issues, by the way, makes her commit adultery and whoever, listen to this, marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Wait, I can be married and be an adulterer? Well, I didn't make up the Bible. (laughs) Evidently you can. In fact, back in the old covenant days, when the people of God returned from captivity and they were being challenged by godly men like Ezra and Nehemiah, they actually identified some inappropriate relationships and they said to these men, you need to put your wives away. You need to divorce them. So this is a case of sanctioned, God-sanctioned divorce. You need to divorce them because these are illegitimate marriages. Now, the reason why this is absolutely critical is in large part because of the whole gay marriage fight that we're fighting in our culture today. So what what is uh, fascinating about many Christian churches is that they will speak out loudly and clearly against, adulter- against uh, homosexual unions. And they will say to homosexual men that have an Ontario or Albertan or whatever it might be, whatever province you're in marriage license, well, you're, no, you're not, you're not legitimately married. And they're like, well, yes, we are. We have a license. We, we, we went to the justice of the peace. We have, a, we have a license. We're married. And we would say, no, the, the marriage license isn't what legitimizes your marriage. It's what God defines marriage to be that legitimizes marriage. And we're right about that. But why is it that we create a completely different standard when it comes to heterosexual marriage? And we say to people, well, yeah, so let's say your relationship started. Let's say you're a married man. You find some babe at work. You ditch your wife. You're in an adulterous relationship you then marry her and you're running around from church to church assuming the church needs to affirm your union and God needs to affirm your union because some pastor, some justice of the peace signed a marriage license stating that you're married. You see the double standard? It's not the government that affirms the legitimacy of your marriage or not. The Bible affirms who can marry and who can't marry. And so if you have abandoned your spouse you've had an adulterous relationship with your spouse and you've run off with someone else and you're married to them now, God's advice is divorce that person 
and go back and repent and make it right with your previous spouse. Now, we understand that there are circumstances in life where it's like you can't unscramble an egg. There may be mitigating circumstances. Come and talk to a pastor. An elder will help you work through that. But we, we actually need to do what the Bible says. And this might, again, shock and rattle some cages, but there are some people in Christian churches today who are not legitimately married. They're not legitimately married. They have a marriage license, but they're actually committing adultery with one another. And if the church doesn't preach that and understand that, then we have no leg to stand on when it comes to chastising incestuous marriages, which by the way, are, are increasingly becoming talked about. We, I think it was in New York City where a, a brother and a sister, uh, or New York State, a brother and a sister said, we want a marriage license, we want to get married. We're not planning on having kids, why can't we? People are like, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh, good point. If men can marry men and women can marry women, why can't brothers and sisters marry? Why can't three people marry? Why can't eight people marry? Why, why couldn't a parent marry their child or a child marry their grandmother? You see where it's going? If, if, our, if our view is, well, whatever the state says is acceptable is acceptable, and the church just needs to affirm all of that, then we have no view of marriage to speak of anymore. So while this teaching might not be popular, and I do believe, by the way, that there are legitimate grounds for divorce and there are legitimate grounds for remarriage, what the Bible doesn't teach is that there's always an opportunity to remarry. We'll always find a way. We'll always find a loophole you know, we'll talk about emotional abuse or incompatibility or, well, yeah, you married too young or your parents arranged it or you sort of fell out of love or whatever. It's all smoke and mirrors, folks. It's all smoke and mirrors. And all it's doing is leading our culture and our families down and down and down and down into a more destructive view of marriage. So if you divorce your spouse for non-biblical grounds, what do you do? You repent and you try to make the relationship right or you stay single. You're born single. Presumably you were single for 20 years or so before you were married. It's not the end of the world. You stay single or you return to your spouse. Or if your spouse has cheated on you and run off and had an affair and they're, they're unwilling to repent and make it right, well, then you're free to remarry. But adulterers aren't just free to go off and remarry whoever they want. And they shouldn't expect the Christian church to agree with that. Now, here's the problem. We, we preach the Bible in our church. Apparently, a lot of churches don't. So I know the mental games that people play. Oh, well. If Harvest won't recognize it, you know, we're gonna to go to Schmarvest or whatever other churches might exist out there. You'll always find somebody out there willing to rubber stamp your choices, but that's not right. You need to make sure your choices align with the things of God. Parents, make sure you're teaching this stuff to your kids when they're young, prepare them for it. Unmarried people, only date, my best advice to you is only date people that have a high view of marriage, okay? And if they don't, give it time or find someone else. 
<laughs> this is a lifelong commitment. And you're never going to marry someone perfect, but you make, make sure that you are dating people that have a high view, a biblical view of marriage. We're not going to hear this in the sociology faculties of our, our, um, our, our country. We're going to hear this in a very small, very small, unfortunately, remnant of biblical churches. So it's, it's, it's hard to find people that understand this, but it's super important that we teach it. And frankly, I think we need to teach it more bluntly and more courageously, the more compromise we see. So that's the third kind of adultery. The fourth kind of adultery is spiritual adultery. This is more of a breach of the second commandment, but a spiritual adulterer is one that replaces Christ as the husband and groom of the church with other gods. So using the word in a spiritual way, the Lord scolded Israel when she worshiped other gods with these words, Psalm 106, 39, thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore. Bet you didn't think that word was in the Bible. It's kind of crass. Played the whore in their deeds. And then in Hosea chapter one, verse two, we read, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom. Now, if you've ever studied the book of Hosea, the question is, is he saying take a wife who is currently a prostitute or take a wife who he's sort of speaking into the future who will become one, who will cheat on you. So we know Hosea's life is a kind of a prefiguring of Christ and he, he's a, a messianic figure in the Old Testament and his relationship with his wife, Gomer, is an analogy for Christ's relationship with his church. That's a background. He says, take, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So obviously both of these scriptural texts, Psalm 106 and Isaiah 1, speak to this idea that a person can be in, involved in spiritual adultery if they're worshiping a God other than the true God, other than Christ. And... God doesn't take kindly to other gods intruding his holy covenant with us any more than you would take kindly having someone interfere with your marriage. So this is out of bounds for the Christian. So four kinds of adultery, four ways that the word adultery is used in the scriptures. So the second question I want to wrestle to the ground with you today is why does God want, or what does God want to protect us from by outlawing adultery among his people and in society as a whole. What is, what is God trying to protect us from? So if we say, okay, yeah, this is another one of those right and wrong sermons, I get it, but what if I do wrong? What if I just do my own thing and live however I want? Like, why, should, why is that a big deal? Well, God is good and all of his commandments are intended to protect us and bless us, right? So here are some of the things God wants to protect you from by being faithful in marriage. The first one is a degenerate mind, a degenerate mind. In Romans chapter one, after listing a series of sexual sins, God says in the 28th verse, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, meaning a corrupt mind, a mind that's falling apart, to do what ought not to be done. 
And in that list of sexual sins is adultery. Adultery leads to mental confusion. It's predicated upon mental confusion, but it also leads to further mental confusion in an unraveling of the mind. You know this if you've ever been involved in sexual addiction or counseled or interacted with someone involved in sexual addiction. People who have engaged in sexual sin start to become more foggy in their thinking, more risky at times in their behavior. It doesn't make sense, but they just sort of give themselves over to their sexual appetites and they start to make really, really bad decisions, relational decisions, financial decisions. Oftentimes the the form of sexual expression that they're in isn't enough, so they start to get involved in kinky behavior, non-creational expressions of human sexuality. Adulterers never really know what they're looking for in life. The mind begins to play tricks on them. And they start to become increasingly confused. I've seen this time and time again. I don't do a lot of counseling anymore, but I spent many years doing that. And I've sat in my office or living rooms with many people who have been busted for the sin of adultery and they're not quite repentant. They're being confronted and challenged. And you're saying, look, look at at everything you're throwing away. Here's a long list of the consequences of your behavior and they, they just don't care. They're like on a path to self-destruction. Long ago, a man by the name of Demosthenes wrote this. Speaking of his culture, this is found in Chuck Swindoll's book, The Sanctity of Life. He says, we keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of the body. We keep wives for the begetting of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. So long as a man supported his wife and family, there's no shame whatsoever in extramarital affairs. Really? Well, the culture that he was actually living in ultimately collapsed and is no longer in existence. Is that the kind of society you want? Women? Is that the kind of world you want to live in? You know, here's your options. You can be single. Or you can be someone's wife that's just responsible for the care of the children in the household. Or you can be a a mistress just available for a fling now and again. Or you can be a prostitute selling. Is that the kind of life you want? You want to be degraded to that point, just used for your physicality? Is that the kind of life you want? So this is one of the consequences, faulty thinking, bad decision-making, a debased mind that results from adulterous behavior. Secondly, a body that becomes unfit for service to God. In the word of God, the scriptures go on to teach, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who has joined with a prostitute becomes one with her in body? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. God points us right back to a creational view of human sexuality. 
But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. God has given, we are embodied beings. We're, we're, we're souls, we're spirits, but we, we also have a body. And we are unified beings. And if we just take care of our minds and take care of our spirits, but don't care, take care of our bodies and use them productively and profitably and biblically, it will affect the whole of us. And we will become unfit for the service of the Lord. How many people, even great pastors and preachers throughout the years, have we seen who have been used mightily by God and all of a sudden we find out that they're sexual perverts? One of the saddest stories recently is Ravi Zacharias. This man has had a, it's an immeasurable impact upon Western civilization with his books on apologetics and his lectures in universities and has worked for the Lord, an incredible mind. And one would think after his death, well, his books will continue to be printed and reprinted and used for generations to come until we find out that he had a mistress in this part of the world and he had a woman over in this part of the world that he'd visit and he was uh, the owner in sexually explicit massage businesses, etc. And everyone's like, yeah, I don't want to read his stuff. And, and many people have been led to Christ by him are like, what? Was, was I duped? The, the destruction. This was a man who was, we would say, who had the capacity to be used greatly by the Lord. And we find out that he's a fraud. No, no, all of us has a little bit of fraud in us. None of us, we're all a little bit hypocritical at times. I'm not gonna stand up here and say, hey, everybody, you know, I've always been absolutely sexually pure because I'm a pastor after all. I'm not gonna lie to you. I haven't been. That's a reality. But as a whole, I've strived to be. And if I do have a sexual thought or a sin, I recognize that it's a sin and I confess it and I seek to make it right. What I don't do is say, yeah, that's fine. No problem, not a big deal. That's a sign of unbelief. So we shouldn't be surprised by a temptation to sin, but what we should be very surprised by is no desire to repent and turn away from it. That's what should bother us deeply. And that disqualifies us from the service of the Lord. There's also a cultural impact here, cultural demise. The Bible says if a man divorces his wife, this is Jeremiah 3, and goes from her and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not the land be greatly polluted? So this is like marrying, remarrying, going back, back and forth, back and forth. You have played the whore with many lovers And would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not, where where have you not been ravished? By the waysides, uh, you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. So there's there's a lot that could be said if we were preaching this passage just by itself. But the overarching idea is is that if, if you look at a nation, a land, a culture, that is unfettered, unrestrained in its sexual expression, you're gonna see pollution and devastation from top 
to bottom. So is it any wonder that our nation is wobbling on the brink of societal collapse when literally everybody does whatever's right in his own eyes in our, our world? Everybody does what's right in his own eyes. Virtually every kind of sexual expression and sexual deviancy is not only allowed, but it's actively endorsed. It's taught. Some of it's taught to our little prepubescent children in our public school systems. It's incredibly devastating. You know, we've seen in Western culture, example after example of drag queens dressed in their ridiculous costumes in, in classrooms with kindergarten students, grade one students, grade two students, reading them stories. You think this is an imprint on a child? It's horrifying. And this is the, this is the product of a culture. We're all concerned about the economy, right? How's the economy doing? What about the spiritual economy of a nation? This is the result of a nation that has denied God and has given people the right to do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. And you know who one of the biggest failures is in all of this? The Christian church. Who's compromised, 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 compromised along the way. You can drive by churches now and they got the, the, the stairs leading up to the front door painted with the rainbow flag. What does that say? Anything goes. You can do whatever you want. You can identify as however you want, live however you want. Love is love. Love is love. You know, when I was in school, you wouldn't be able to get away with defining a word by a word. Hey, read her a definition of love. Oh, love is love. It's nonsense. It doesn't even make any sense. You're not defining it. But this is how crazy the world has become. We, we, we spout off these little cliches, these, throw up these little hashtags. We don't even know what they mean. And you know what? It's deliberate. Because without definitions, you just do whatever you want. Total breakdown of the intellect also in culture. And then we have divine judgment. For it is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you would know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in these things, as he told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For the Lord has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, it's not, a it's not a, you're not disregarding Aaron Rock, the preacher. But gives his Holy Spirit to you. You're disregarding God. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 8. I would imagine that some of you would be reluctant to engage in an adulterous relationship because there's a high likelihood that when you got home, your spouse would be carrying a baseball bat. It would hurt you. Right? I'm sure my wife would hurt me. She's small, but she can be. She has her green belt in karate, by the way, so don't mess with her. Right? 
So there, there is a certain sense in that, you know, fear of our spouse's wrath, fear of the church's wrath, fear of public shaming, fear of how our kids will respond. You know, all of those can be good mitigating factors to stop us from doing stupid things. But fundamentally, we need to be thinking about the primary one who's offended, and that is God. So we, we concern ourselves with being caught by people. How embarrassing I was caught by people. How about being caught by God? You get caught every time because God knows every time we sin against him. The Bible says in this passage, God is, the, is an avenger in all these things. Now his vengeance might not be quick. It might come at you like a slow moving train. But eventually God will catch up to you if you're living in sin and he will punish you unless you repent and turn from your sin. A fifth consequence is a lack of love for your spouse's body. Whereas God calls us to love our spouses, to find sexual intimacy in that union, when we start to find sexual fulfillment in other people, because we think, well, this is going to spruce up my marriage, or this is going to give me you know, more opportunity to express myself, what actually happens is our capacity to be sexually intimate is reduced. There's only so many times you can reuse a piece of masking tape before it loses its stickiness. There's only so many times when you can give your body away to other people before you lose your capacity to love, to trust, to enjoy sexual pleasure. We see this among sex addicts, even young people, young men who have become impotent. Why? Not because there's a hormonal imbalance. It's because nothing satisfies them anymore. They've spent weeks and months and years watching pornography. Nothing satisfies them anymore, so they're impotent. Dead marriage beds, nothing going on. Why? Because they haven't obeyed God. So we might think, you know, by sowing our proverbial wild oats. It will increase our sexual capacity and interest. Over time, it'll do the exact opposite. We know this. The scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter five, what the solution is to this. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of the body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is God's plan. This is God's plan for us to selflessly and sacrificially work on our sexual relationship with our husband or wife for life. This is where true satisfaction is found. This is God's plan for us. Not multiple wives, multiple husbands, multiple partners. It's a huge problem. We need to go back to God's creational ideal of marriage and family, and everybody wins if we do. And guarantee you, everybody wins if we follow God's pattern. And then the sixth one is probably the most scary one. This is the sixth consequence of failing to obey. Exclusion from God's heavenly and eternal kingdom. How do you like that? 
So while there will be many in God's heavenly kingdom that have committed sexual sins and repented, if sexual sin is a characteristic of your life, unfaithfulness is a characteristic of your life, it probably means you're not a real believer. You're a fake. You're a fraud. You've bought into sent, a sent, for sentimental reasons, you brought, bought into Christianity or it's a cultural thing or you just really like the propositions of the Christian faith, but you're not regenerate. Because in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Did anybody not tell you that? Did some fake preacher tell you that once you're saved, you can do whatever you want? Did someone tell you that? That's a false gospel. That's not true. It says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. The list goes on. We'll inherit the kingdom of God. You won't be there. So this is the ultimate consequence of sexual sin. You just reveal that you're not really the real deal in the first place. This isn't a saved and lost verse. This isn't a work your way into salvation verse. This is a, if you're truly saved, you're the real deal. You will abstain from these things. Or if you commit these acts as one-off sins, you will repent of them quickly and you will make it right with God. But if, if, if your life is known as, you know, I'm an idolater, I'm an adulterer, that's part of my identity. You won't be in the, in the eternal kingdom of God. There's no way. So while forgiveness is available for all sins, to be marked habitually by these things is to demonstrate that you are outside of Christ's heavenly promises. No Christian will persist in heinous sin without repenting. No Christian will. No Christian will ever feel comfortable worshiping other gods. No Christian will ever feel comfortable being a perpetual liar. No Christian will ever feel comfortable sleeping around on their spouse. No Christian will ever feel comfortable with these things. These are marks of those that are walking in the flesh, not those that are walking in the spirit. So finally, how do I chart a new course? Well, I, I want to give you some homework. I want to give all of us some homework. And that is at some point this week, read Psalm 51. Read Psalm 51, because this is sort of David's psalm of repentance. This is how he made it right with the Lord. This is his psalm of, of repentance as he professed and confessed his sins to the Lord. And I'm not going to read it all to you, but I want to read a couple verses at the beginning. This is his song of repentance and renewal where he said, have mercy on me. This is how we find renewal and healing. Lord, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. You can read the rest for yourself, but it's a great psalm of repentance and renewal and healing. And God will bless you if you walk in the footsteps of David and act accordingly. So let's be a church family that raises our children according to these statutes from God that puts this into practice in our own lives. I know it's tough because there's so much temptation, but we can do it. Why? Because we're filled with the spirit of God. We have the people of God to surround us, to hold us accountable. Don't hide and pretend. Get some accountability partners. And we have the word of God, which gratifies us as we learn and listen to God's word. These are God's laws and they will bless us and they will bless the nation as a result. 